0: This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 13. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast,
1: the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio.
0: Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. Today's episode is a treat. In my opinion, it's a treat because we got country music mixing engineer, Billy Decker, who is one of the biggest, if not the biggest country music mixing engineer in Nashville. Uh, He has mixed records for people like Billy Ray Cyrus, Kenny Chesney, Darius Rucker, Jason Aldean, Sam Hunt, Dustin Lynch, Chris Young. He's Cassidy Pope. Tons and tons and tons and tons of people. That's all you need to know. I think to his name at this point, over 25 million records sold with his mixing credit on it. And I was just looking around at some of the music videos he has on his site and just looking at seven or eight music videos, they have a total view count of over 250, 260 million people have watched the music videos just from seven or eight videos. This guy has made it if you could ever say that anyone has made it in country music This guy has made it in the mixing world for country music. This is an extraordinarily competitive market The country music world has so much competition and billy decker has somehow found a way to not only break into this industry But to absolutely dominate it and it's not going to take you very long Once you start listening to this interview to understand why he has had such a long and successful career And just a quick disclaimer, there are some audio issues in this episode that you'll have to deal with because eh, it is what it is. It was our first guest on here, and we're still figuring out our systems on how to get the best audio from all of our guests with the least amount of feedback and weird little glitches. And unfortunately, it's not perfect audio, so you'll just have to look past that fact. You were about to get a behind-the-scenes listen to how this man has entrenched himself in one of the most difficult genres to break into and sustain a very long and very lucrative career in this world. So without further delay, here is our interview with Billy Decker. So Billy Decker, we are so stoked to have you here. Welcome to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Greetings from Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Tell me about your first paid project This is a huge moment in a lot of home studio owners uh, or even commercial studio owners in your case This is a huge deal in a lot of our lives and i'd love to kind of hear back the story around your first paid project
1: My first paid project here in nashville probably would have been my first paid job Uh, I could not I moved from via nebraska to virginia beach as a staff engineer out in Virginia Beach doing R and b and hip hop, all the way down to Nashville in probably ninety four, and nobody would hire me. So I've got a criminal justice degree from the University of Nebraska. Then I went to full sale and uh, came to Nashville and I found myself washing dishes at Longhorn Steakhouse because nobody would hire me. Uh, and then I moved over to Applebee's, gave myself a raise and started waiting tables at Applebee's instead of washing dishes. Uh, And in the meantime, I uh, snuck into Belmont University, believe it or not. Here I am like a 26-year-old, 27-year-old. And I snuck in late at night and took all their internships off their internship board and started cold calling people all over Nashville the next day. And (laughs) I had a music publisher actually call me back and say, Yeah, I could use some help. It's unpaid. And what you'll be is a song plugger. So that was back when we had cassettes. And so my job was to make the cassettes and then to deliver them to the music publishers, the artists, uh, the record companies, whoever he had meetings lined up with to pitch these writers songs. Uh, So I was a song plugger was the title. Well, after a while, I was like, why in the world am I pitching their songs I used to be a uh, artist, you know, every, what do they say? Every failed engineer or every, every good engineer is a failed musician. So I'm like, (laughs) I can write songs. I'm going to do this. So I went out and wrote like 12 songs, mixed them myself, engineered them, recorded them, paid for everything. And when I was out supposed to be having meetings and pitching other people's songs, I would slip some of mine in as well. Well, this gal over at Curb Records was like, hey, these are pretty good. Who is this? And I'm like, Well, it's me. And fast forward two months later, I ended up getting a staff writing deal at Curb Records. And I was actually there for five years. Now, the good part of the story is right when I got that, a friend of mine called me and said, there's a gentleman by the name of Pat Finch who was running famous music publishing and he was building a studio and he just got the gig to run the music publishing company. And he was putting together a studio and was looking for an engineer. So I grabbed a resume real quick, you know, and ran down there to Famous Music Publishing and gave him my resume. And I walked in to see Pat in the studio in the basement of Famous Music and uh, Guitar Center had just dropped off all the gear. This was on like a Friday and he was sitting in a pile of boxes and wires. Studio was totally just... Built out, but it had no gear set up and it was he had just taken over So I said hey pat i'm billy decker heard you're looking for an engineer. He's like, yeah, 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 whatever. It's Friday, it's like three o'clock. He's like i've got a session. I've got to figure out how to put all this stuff together I have no idea what i'm doing. I'm a music publisher not an engineer He's like leave your resume with me and just basically get out. He's like you're i'm on a time schedule. You're killing me, dude so I was like, oh, bummed out. So I started driving home, and uh, I was like, you know what? No pain, no gain, no chance, whatever. I turned the car around, uh, took an exit on the interstate, drove back to him. I said, and I walked in. He's like, what are you doing here? He's like, basically, I told you to get the hell out. You know. I'm like, <laughs> Pat, I'll make you a deal. I said, you give me the gig. I will stay this weekend. I'll wire your entire studio. You won't have to do a thing, and I will run your sessions We will not miss our deadline Monday morning. I promise you. He's like, you're hired. He threw me the pack of cables and walked out (laughs) of the room. I ended up being there for about six years as a staff engineer. So that was my first paid gig. And it all happened within like two weeks of getting a writing deal as well. So I went from waiting tables, uh, washing dishes, sneaking in, stealing internships, did an internship for about three to six months. Then it turned into a paid gig songwriter and then turned into an engineering gig
2: walk us through that moment when you're you're thinking about turning around Tell us tell me a little bit more about that When you're driving on the highway,
1: you know what i've always been the kind of person where i've only been self-employed So all I know is myself. So if I screw up, it's my fault if I do good It's my fault in high school. I played tennis which is like a Individual sport, you know what I mean? And I also was a gymnast for like a day, you know, a week, one day. But everything I've always done has always been kind of like individual sports. So I am of the mindset that you make or break your own situation, you know what? And if you want to make your future, you've got to go out and do it. Nobody's going to hand it to you, nobody's going to give it to you. I actually, after I got going a few years down the road, I was working on a record for Asylum Records. And I was listening to uh, that Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do For You, produced by Mutt Lang, mixed by Bob Clearmountain, And I'm like, oh, that is the greatest drum sound in the world. So I got the album credits out, found out, I think I dug around in a mix magazine and found out where his studio was. And I cold called him. There was a number below his studio. So I cold called Bob Clearmountain, Mountain, uh, hoping to ask him for a snare sample. <laughs> and literally he picked up the phone. And he's like, hello? Wow. I'm like, Bob, you don't know me from Adam, but this is Billy Decker. I'm working on a record on an Asylum artist, and I'm a big fan of that drum sound. He's like, well, a lot of those were uh, Mutt Lang samples, but we mixed a bunch of mine in. He's like, do you have my Bob Clear Mountain sample pack? I'm like, no. And he's like, give me your address. I'm going to send it to you. So we literally talked for about 45 minutes, and that moment kind of defined me. I'm like, if Bob Clear Mountain can talk to a nobody then for the rest of my life, if I ever rise in the ranks, I'm going to do my best to return every single phone call and uh, give everybody the time of day. So I will always return an email. I'll always return a phone call. Big or small, it don't matter. You know what I mean? He took a chance on me, so I figured the least I can do is take a chance on somebody else and pay it forward.
2: That's awesome.
0: So how you were working with someone as a staff engineer for a while When did you finally break out to be on your own to be the billy decker name? That is the person that you rely on you yourself uh, And no one else
1: probably 2001 2001 is when I went really hardcore Staffing or away from the staff engineer Totally independent. So I was like 1099 even though I say I was a staff engineer brian, but I was still 1099 across the board. I was like the guy on staff, but I wasn't getting the check and benefits and all that.
0: So for anyone that doesn't know what that means, uh, you know, 1099 just means he was self-employed. They would send him what's called a 1099 in America. And that just says, hey, he's a freelancer. We're paying him this amount of money and he doesn't actually work for us. So we don't have to give him benefits or overtime, <laughs> which is just a sleazy way of getting away from paying that kind of stuff. <laughs>
1: and you have to pay taxes. They do not take out taxes. That's right. So you're responsible for your own taxes and that's another piece of advice We'll probably get to later on but always pay your taxes and stay ahead of them stay ahead of them being self-employed. That's very important
0: So when you finally broke out on your own was it due to You getting side projects, you know outside of the studio that were under your own name Or was it because you had built relationships as a staff engineer and that parlayed well into your own career as a mixing engineer?
1: Yes, everything uh, in Nashville has always, for me, been word of mouth. Nobody uses business cards. I would engineer a demo session for a writer, and that writer would co-write with somebody else. So they would demo in batches of five. So hypothetically, you had five brand new people you could meet because they wrote with five different people. And sometimes they would do a three-way or even a four-way co-write. So I'm meeting all these writers, and it just literally – exponentially just kind of spider webs out so you always had to be a on your best behavior and treat every writer like gold like they were the artists you know and you always had to be really quick with the turnaround too because these writers are trying to get their songs written and done in time and over to their publishing company so they could submit them to get on like jason aldean's record or carrie underwood or kenny chesney so you had to be really quick mixing get them done fast and uh, you had to be nice to everybody so that you kept working, you know. Uh, so that just kind of spiraled, spiderweb, spiderweb. And before long, I just had a, a rock-solid base of clientele that to this day I still have. And literally, I could not mix a single album for the rest of my life and still make a great living off just doing demos. Now, ever since the advent of Spotify, that's kind of diminished a bit because there's been a lot of in-the-box programming and everybody's cut back on their demo budgets but i still get a lot of independent projects and a lot of people say somebody in seattle call me up saying hey i've got a new single we're releasing you know we're doing soundcloud spotify all that stuff and so between that and just my reputation for being fast and getting it done and calling people back uh, that's kept me employed
0: So going back to the the spider web thing you were mentioning when you would talk about working with songwriters and there would be five of them there And then you know, that would be five new people you meet and that was just a spider webbing natural networking type of thing Was that an intentional thing that you were doing in order to meet more people and find more people to work with? Or is that just something that happened to be the case?
1: totally organic totally happened just on its own nashville was such a it's become a big town, but yet it's still a small town. And even more so back in the day, people used to walk up and down the three block music row, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th, and then sometimes 19th. But people would just be walking up and down, pitching songs, walking to studios to co-write to, at publishing companies. So yeah, it, it just literally, it, it's, it's a town unlike any other. And it's, it's gotten away from that, I will be honest. Uh, I'm over in barry hill now. So a lot of people are over in barry hill There's still people on music road, but that's diminished. They're putting up condos and stuff so uh, but yeah, it totally happened organically
2: So i'm wondering about you know this experience of being you know sort of the staff engineer And kind of how that compared to full sale, you know to an audio education Would you kind of compare and contrast? What you learned as a student versus what it was like in the real world?
1: No, i'll be honest with you if you Knowing what I know now, I, I will give the audio school credit because they helped me get internships. And back in the day, you needed to know signal flow on those large format consoles. But I was one of the first guys here in Nashville to jump on Pro Tools. So I didn't use my large format console knowledge very much. Uh, on my internships, I did where I was aligning line and tape machines and whatnot, but... In hindsight, I learned the majority out in the real world, you know, just doing it every day. One thing they don't teach you at any of these recording schools is people skills, which I think is 98% of it. You know, we can all learn to engineer. Now granted some of us, or I'd like to say some of us just have a natural talent for being able to get stuff quick and recognize frequencies and I think some people are almost just born with it, you know, with just a musical ability, which really helps in this field. But 98% of my return business is all people skills. I've actually had people come in and say, Decker, you're definitely not the best engineer, but you're probably one of the coolest dudes to hang out with. So we're going to keep coming (laughs) back. And your studio (laughs) smells good. You burn incense and you got good snacks. So we're coming back
0: what do you think attributes to your amazing people skills? Cause I know you, a lot of people like talk about how nice you are. Was that something you had to learn over time? Was this something you read in a book? Was this something that you just inherited from your family? How did this come about?
1: Well, if you ask my wife, it's, it's all a bunch of shit. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you're nice to everybody at work. And then you come home and you're not nice. And I'm like, well, that's cause I've been nice to everybody at work. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> you know what? I really give it to my parents. Uh, my dad was kind of like my hero growing up. He was a small town pharmacist and he was the kind of that old school compoundist that would get called at like two or three in the morning when there was a sick baby and would get up, go out to the store, mix up the medicine, and then deliver it to the house, you know, for the sick baby. And I think I just got that from my dad. I really do. I don't know if. You can be, well, obviously you can be taught that because my dad taught it to me. But, you know, I think I just attribute that to my upbringing. You know, I was small town, Nebraska. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody was nice to everybody. Good old boy. Yeah, I really, I really do think so. So, and you know what? At the end of the day, life's way too short to just be an asshole. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't get why some people are. I mean, it's, it's so easy to be nice. Why wouldn't you be, you know? I remember the first couple sessions uh, mixing for songwriters. Songwriters are pretty much like artists. You know what I mean? They're they're very type. Well, you can tell me. You're you've done all those people analysis, Brian. Uh, what type am I talking? Is it like type A or where they're? I mean, songwriters like artists. They have that ego, and it's not a bad thing. That's what makes them an artist. But they it needs to be constantly fed and affirmed. And uh, I think everybody in the music business is. And I just learned real quick that if somebody brings me a new song, and they're like, "What do you think of it?" And I'm like, eh, "It's okay." I'm like, "That's like their baby to a songwriter. Yeah. They just birthed the new baby. And if I just slap their baby or call them ugly, they're never going to come <laughs> back again. You know. I learned early on that the songs are more than just songs to them. It's actually a part of them. And without getting philosophical, it's almost like a part of their soul, you know, that they're barren and stuff like that. So you've got to be real careful with how you treat their soul or their baby or whatever, you know?
2: That's super interesting. I would imagine that a lot of our listeners are are probably thinking about that statement you made, 98% of it is people skills. And I totally agree, you know, for me personally, with my mastering business, I used to produce and mix and all that stuff. And I figured I was, I was decent at mastering but that I was nice. And my experience with mastering engineers, I thought to myself, boy, if I can just be okay at mastering and nice, I'll kill it. I'll absolutely have a good business. And thank God that tended to be true. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I think for a lot of our listeners, I'm sure that's a revelation to them that it's 98% people skills. I think it's, it's super true. What would you say to these guys who maybe have good audio engineer skills, but it hasn't clicked to them yet that they're an ass? And that—that's one of the reasons that they're struggling in their business. How do you learn people skills like you have, Billy?
1: I would say you need to get out and be around other people. All of us are guilty. We get locked in the studio, and I mean the stereotypical engineer. And you guys can back this up. Is like a dude with super long hair, kind of wears the same T-shirt. You know, kind of doesn't shower. You know, needs deodorant. Kind of just hunched over the... I mean, that's like, through the years, that's been the stereotypical type of engineer. When when you say audio engineer, everybody thinks, oh, kind of like dirtbag, just holed up in a studio, you know? And
0: We call those cave dwellers.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and for better or worse, that's just the stereotype. So I would say the first thing you need to do if you want to break that stereotype is A, shower, B, wear deodorant, and C, just get out and... Network with people. Uh, There's always a bar or a club you can go to to see new bands. Just show up and start shaking hands, introducing yourself, buy people some drinks, go up and talk to people. I've always been just real outgoing, you know. And I mean, obviously, if I'll cold call Bob Clearmountain, I'll pretty much talk to anybody anywhere, you know. I did the same with uh, Mike Shipley before he passed away. I cold called Kevin Churko, and that's how I got to know him. So pretty much you have to force yourself to be around other people, and then all of a sudden it'll come naturally. And if you're an introvert and it's awkward, you need to make yourself, put yourself in an uncomfortable situation enough times, and you'll you'll overcome it, you know. It's like uh, public speaking. Everybody hates public speaking. But the people that have the gift, you can tell they're like super relaxed and stuff like that. But if you get them alone, everybody will admit they hate public speaking. Even the people that are good for it still get nervous. So I would say put yourself in uncomfortable situations and just make yourself be around people and it'll, it'll just start coming to you.
0: I want to go back to what you were talking about when it came to going to shows, talking to people uh, at events. I can tell you right now, uh, there are a lot of people listening right now who, who cringe at the, the thought of that. They're so introverted. That's such a leap above what they could ever do in their minds to just go out and start talking to random people. But I know that you do, A, you do that well. But B, you also are very active on social media or text messaging or online. What are some of the things you do to connect with people? Because the first time you ever talked to me, the first time I ever heard of you was actually a text message. (laughs) You had texted me. Yeah. Cold, a cold text. I remember that. Um, Do you do that a lot? Like, what do you do as far as online strategy or, or texting or, you know, how do you connect with people in a way that's not in person?
1: Facebook is probably the biggest thing that I do. I reach out to a lot of people just through Facebook. You know, a lot of times... I'll actually call some of my friends and say, Hey, do you, that's how I met you. I actually called another engineer and he goes, Oh yeah, that's Brian hood. He's like, you need to check out this course the from shit to gold. And so that's how we ended up. And then he showed it to me and I've researched it. I'm like,
0: damn,
1: that's like money. So that's how I ended up calling you just cold called you. And then, uh, obviously we hit it off, you know, cause <laughs> yeah. we're here talking today <laughs> and we've been to lunch and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, Yeah, I would say social media. I'm not really good with Twitter or Instagram. I've got an Instagram, but I'm just, I'm so behind the curve. You know, I actually have my kids help me with it if I need to do something. But Facebook, I got down pretty good. So I'll actually instant message people. And then I just email a lot too. But I tell a lot of people that you can always email me if you've ever got a question. And nine times out of 10, I'll get all these random emails and then I'll end up meeting friends Through that, like, here's an example. I was listening to a a hard rock, a metal band called Stitched Up Heart. And so I put on Facebook, I said, man, I'm listening to this. I love that snare sound. I'm going to, I need to bribe that producer with a cutting board. You know, I'm all into woodwork. And I said, let me bribe him with a cutting board so I can uh, get that snare sound. Does anybody know who it is? And I had all these people hit me back. And then one person actually gave me, uh, I think it was his email or something. So I ended up emailing him and introduced myself that way. In the meantime, the guitar player from the band, Stitched Up Heart, somehow overheard that word of mouth and he direct messaged me and said, hey, it's Mitchell Marlowe's the producer. He's like, I'm the guitar player. He's like, I think it was a sample, but I think he blended with a couple others. So he's like... This is how you get a hold of him. He's like, Nice to meet you, dude. I saw your, uh, some podcast you did. So I'm like, It's a total small world. But seriously, you just got to put yourself out there and not be afraid to look like an idiot, you know? And I'm totally of the mindset that you never stop learning. So I will ask anybody anytime. I am definitely not afraid to say, I have no idea how Brian Hood blends his drum sub and does his parallel compression so i'll be the first to just cold call him and say hey how do you do this brian that's great and flattery will get you anywhere (laughs) you know if somebody calls me up and says dude i love what you do right there i make a note to email right back (laughs) somebody says they love what i do or or they're a fan obviously that's going to get a return phone call in a heartbeat you know what i mean So flattery will get you everywhere in my book
0: So going back to the cutting board stuff you mentioned This is one thing I had written down in my show notes, uh to to talk to you about a Your big secret is customer service and you do that in a number of ways But b You also nurture those relationships through these cutting boards. I found this to be very interesting. You hand make you handcraft cutting boards As a side hobby and you give them away. Can you tell us about that?
1: I do. Uh a lot of times Like, say for instance, I'll do an album. A lot of times I get paid, we shake hands, you know, we're all friends, but you tend to drift apart from the A&R people, the record company, the managers, the producers. So I make uh, these cutting boards and I have a brand that actually stamps into the side of the cutting boards. that says Decker boards. And I have found on a number of occasions that if I gift them away to you know, my producer friends I've met along the way or the artists or the A&R people, everybody cooks, everybody eats every night. And when they're in their kitchen and they're chopping vegetables and if they see Decker boards and it's like, oh, we got a new record. You know what? Damn, I about forgot about Billy Decker, but you know what? As I'm chopping this onion up, that reminds me I need to call Decker.
2: That's awesome.
1: So, but you could do it In uh, you don't need to do cutting boards, but you can do it in other ways, you know
0: I think a cutting board is such a better way to leave something behind besides a a terrible business card or Some other small trinket like a pin
1: right but I got into it just out of the necessity my wife Actually when we moved we moved to a different house probably Six years ago and she's like well, we finally have room for a big farm table And she started looking at restoration hardware and stuff. And those damn things are like six grand. And I'm like, you know what? I got some skills. I bet I could make a farm table. So I seriously got online, made our kitchen table. And that just spurned almost like a love and a passion for wood. It was like so cool to get out in the garage and get away from music, decompress, do something with your hands. And then, you know, Sunday morning, out there banging in the garage the first thing monday you're like all rejuvenated for the studio again you decompressed you got away from music and took your mind off it and now you're ready to hit the studio running 10 a.m and you're like good to go you know it's a good balance i'm a big balance guy so keep your home life in order keep your mind in order keep your body in order you know everybody gets sick so if you're sick you know heal your body up so you're not like screwing up your ears and your mixes and stuff but ironically enough, I say that, but I actually chop my finger off, my left index finger, out in the garage playing with wood. So fast forward, you know, two days. I go in, they reattach my finger, put me in a splint. We were just leaving for vacation two days later, so the doctor loaded me up with hydrocodone. We get down to the beach. I take my laptop. Which is, has my identical rig cloned in it, you know, just in case I did get a call because we were going on a week long vacation at the beach. Uh, second day down there, my hand was throbbing, you know, and I was the guy in the water with the bandage on and the plastic baggie, you know, just floating out there. I couldn't do anything much, you know, because I just had surgery and stuff. So my wife and kids, everybody went to the beach. I'm like, I'm good. I'm just going to stay here. Well, I popped a couple of those hydrocodones they gave me, went out on the patio, checked my email. And a couple songwriter friends of mine had sent me a couple songs to mix. Well, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I brought my laptop. So I went in, couldn't find my headphones. So I went to the refrigerator, grabbed a Corona, which was my first mistake because I was taking hydrocodone. So unwittingly, I started mixing Coronas, sitting on the balcony, started mixing some songs, but I couldn't find my earbuds. So I ended up stealing my daughter's Hello Kitty headphones. so two hours later i kick out two demos i've already downed like four coronas high drunk on hydrocodone coronas mixing on hello kitty headphones on a laptop sitting on a balcony overlooking the ocean emailed them right back to the songwriters within 15 seconds my inbox dings they're like decker we don't know what in the hell is going on down there But these could be some of the best mixes you have ever done for us (laughs) (laughs) And I just said thank you and never told them the truth
0: (laughs) Please tell me there's somewhere where we can hear this mix online somewhere.
1: I'll go back through my archives I'll I'll drag it up, but I do not recommend that so back to my earlier statement Heal your body up first before you decide to mix because you probably won't be as lucky as I was
2: That's hilarious Maybe you should mix with Hello Kitty headphones more often. Maybe that was the secret. <laughs> They're like uh, the new NS10 monitors.
1: <laughs> that's that's my thing. <laughs> Hello Kitty.
2: So this
0: brings up an interesting uh, topic that is, you are 100% in the box, right? Correct. And I remember whenever we first met, when I first came over to your studio just to chat about things, one of the, the notes I wrote down after that conversation was, That's one of your your big things in Nashville is you are one of the first guys to guarantee your work. You have an unlimited revision policy and you're only able to do that because you're in the box. Is that right?
1: Correct. I still do that today. So I charge one price. Clients can call me two weeks from now and say, hey, give me a little vocal up or move that guitar around. 90% of my mornings are recalling and tweaking from past mixes. And then I usually start mixing in the afternoon to be honest with you. Because of that policy, you know
0: So can you tell us what does your day look like from morning to evening or beginning of work to end of work? How do you structure your day? Typically?
1: I get a piece of paper and a sharpie and I write down everything I do and then when i'm done I cross it off But I will check my email when I get up nine times out of ten There's something from the day before or two days before even a week before that needs fixed or changed or versions done I'll come in First thing I'll do is do that. Second thing I'll do, in the meantime, I'll be downloading the today's work, whatever it is. I would say, boy, about 75% of my stuff still comes Dropbox these days. People still want to stop over to the studio and just hand me a hard drive, shake my hand, you know, say hello and stuff like that. But more and more, it's all internet. Everything is internet. So I'll do the recalls. I'll fire those out back to the client and then i'll just start mixing today's work and then as soon as i'm done i always fire mixes out right after i'm done so say i've got four things to mix today i'll probably hear back on the first or second thing as i'm working on the third or fourth so a lot of times i'll just save stop snap up the old mix make the change fire them out and then jump back on it i bounce to disk so i don't use any external processing whatsoever So it truly is 100% in the box. And back in the day, I used to catch some flack, you know, even before there was a, like Pro Tools 5 before delay compensation and stuff like that. I used to catch flack and I'm like, I just didn't care, you know, because it was working. And I mean, I used to get on some of those forums, like gear sluts and stuff and just get hammered. People are like, you can't mix in the box. What do you do? I'm like, well, I just did. It just went to number one. (laughs) (laughs) I just made you know x amount of money. I'm in this magazine. I'm somebody did it and it was me so uh, and now it's funny because i've gotten a jump on 90 percent of a lot of those guys that were telling me I couldn't do it now And they're in the box now and I still will get calls from a lot of those guys That used to hate on it, you know, they're like hey decker. How do you do this? I'm, like well, let me tell you
0: i've seen the trend happening
1: I hold no grudges no grudges. That's awesome. It was just a fast way to work for me, you know Got me home quicker. I was able to eat dinner with my wife have a home life My kids were young so I could you know hell I was getting up driving them to school dropping them off at 7 30 8 o'clock i'd get down to music row And have two songs mixed before 10 o'clock because the phone wasn't ringing music row didn't open up till 10 I'd be done and home at five o'clock, you know, and in the summertime stays light till eight, eight thirty, you know, so you could, I could be out playing with my kids, mow the grass, all that stuff, be a normal human being, you know.
2: That's awesome. There was a, a friend of mine that told me one time, um, we were talking about, you know, what it means to market yourself, um, to get customers to come back to you and to get customers to hire you. And he told me, that he had heard some guy named Billy Decker say that people hire someone for two reasons: uh, they like them and they're the last person they thought of and that just really blew my mind like that really kind of jumped out and grabbed me. Does that ring a bell? is that did he make that up Is that a no?
1: That, that probably sounds like some idiot words of wisdom I spit off a couple years ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's amazing. Well, talk about that idea of people will hire the last person they thought of.
1: That's kind of the, the whole theory of insight in mind, you know? Um, and that's why I try to make social media my form of advertising. So I want to say, my wife says I post too much, but what I do try to post is I tell everybody Facebook's too good for two things, bragging on your self or bragging on your kids. Other than that, it's a waste of time, you know, forget all the political arguments, all the blah, 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 blah. So I basically post whenever I've got a new client or I'm doing something that I want other people to know about. Like Rodney Atkins and I were in the studio this last week and he's coming back tomorrow and we're going to, uh, finished up his new single so i'm going to take a couple selfies with him and the producer i'm going to post them you know what i mean and just maybe put a little snippet of what we were working on with my cell phone and put it out on facebook you know so i am a big believer that the more people see you working and know you're busy you're going to be in the forefront of their mind you know what i mean so it's like they're doing something it's like oh you know i'm cutting I'm using a decker board. Uh, I just saw decker on facebook. He's mixing rodney I just finished up star sets new ep, you know That was a step outside of the country genre for me And i'm just about ready to do a post about that, you know, and basically just brag on that I'm, always of the mindset that you've got to be You know in mind insight People have to be aware of you. Otherwise, they're going to forget about you because there's there. Let's be honest there's gazillion engineers out there that are probably just as good that can do the job. But if I'm the one they thought of last, obviously I'm going to get the gig, you know. So if I'm out at a showcase that I don't want to be at, but I know there's going to be industry people there, I'll go shake some hands. You know what I mean? Buy a couple drinks and it's like, hey, we saw Decker the other night. Let's use Decker. So it gets tiring and a lot of times you don't want to do it. And I don't do it as much as I used to. But boy, starting out, I sure did. I got out and I made sure everybody knew where I was, what I was doing, and just tried to stay in the forefront of their mind.
0: I always tell people if you don't come to mind when someone is ready to book a project, you will never, ever, ever, ever get the project. So, exactly what you said there, doing things to brag about yourself online, which. Billy says bragging but really it's it's not it's all he's doing is staying top of mind in a very strategic way Uh, you could call it bragging, but it's really not because his intention is to stay top of mind So he keeps getting work in his business So if you fail to do that if you fail to be In their mind on multiple touch points. So all these facebook posts, you know If you aren't seen if you aren't heard you will not get hired wise words
1: Yeah, I really do think I just like to talk, you know, I just I like hanging out with people. I like talking So a lot of studios they'll just mix and send the versions out But I always invite my clients to come over and hang And tweak it out with me in person and make the final tweaks, you know And uh, a lot of times they'll bring a friend or their co-writer and that's just another way to just stay in The public eye, you know, it does get harder though just because you know, everything's gotten more Individualized where we're on the internet or we get sent files and we really don't even need to interact with people I mean, I remember growing up, we didn't have cell phones, you know what I mean? We had to talk to people. We had to go, I had a pager, you know, we used to type letters, believe it or not. So maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know, you know, but I just had to put myself in front of people and, and sell myself, you know?
2: Well, I think for a lot of the people that listen to the podcast, I think that there's, it's something I struggle with of I will today it happened to me where I will get fixated on. Some kind of piece of equipment or some kind of upgrade that I need to make Uh, today for me It was like my hard drive structure. Should I Upgrade the current hard drive I have and have three hard drives and move projects, you know all this stupid technical stuff (laughs) and I get going down these holes where I'll start thinking about some technical problem and You know, we're all engineers. We like pushing buttons. We like plugging things in, you know we like moving the faders around and you know, It's challenging for me to sometimes stop and say, you know what would probably be more effective at growing your business would be if you called these last five people that you finished a project for or these last five people you haven't heard for. To be social and outgoing and have people skills and to be a friendly human, I think for a lot of audio engineers, because you hit the nail on the head, that the stereotype is not positive. About the social skills of audio engineers.
1: It's like the Dungeons and Dragons dudes, you know, just holed up in their
0: <laughs> in their basement waiting to blow something up or
2: full disclosure, I
0: have played Dungeons and Dragons in my past. So I just want to get oh. that out there. <laughs> I have not. I kinda want to. Well let's shift gears a little bit. So your career you had a pretty early start you've obviously built relationships with a lot of people And that has contributed to a massive amount of your success as one of the biggest country music mixers uh, probably in the world so talking about that transition from Working out of someone else's studio. When did you get your first studio that you've worked out of on your own? You know when you got your own room
1: when I moved over to soundstage probably in 2001 I had my own room over there and we set up a They actually, I was working in basically that little demo studio in the basement of Famous Music, and I had an opportunity. Their studio manager just cold called me and said, hey, we're looking for somebody who's a Pro Tool mixer to fill this room. Would you be interested? And I said, well, sure. I went over there and looked, and it was like a 56-channel Pro Control back in the day, you know, huge quested mains in the room. It was beautiful. I was over at Soundstage, one of the big you know, one of the big three. So I said, sure, but I, there's no way I can afford this. And they're like, well, here, let's cut a deal. So basically I split with them, like, say for instance, I mix a demo for $200. I would bill out a hundred for my time back in the day. And I would bill out a hundred for the studio. So I would fill out two invoices and then the studio would give me a kickback, you know, they gave me a percentage back as for incentive for bringing the business in. So I was like, well, that's fantastic. Well, it turns out that I had more business than I thought. So it ended up keeping me there until I left three years ago. So I was over there for 17 years and it worked out great. Yeah, we had a great relationship. And then it swapped out owners and, uh, some of the, people in the accounting department decided they wanted to change the structure of, of our original deal. And I noticed my commission checks getting smaller and smaller, and it was because they weren't being you know, collected upon. And so I just made a couple calls and found a studio where I just actually lease. I just write them a check once a month, and then I keep everything. And at first I was nervous to do that, but I was just ready for a change And that was the deal when I came over to this new place And after being here for about six months, I realized I should have made this move about You know 10 years ago.
0: So what years were you at soundstage?
1: I was from soundstage from 2001 to 2015
0: Are you comfortable sharing kind of what it ended up costing you per month to stay at that place? Towards the end i'm sure people are curious what a commercial space like that costs because this is a six-figure home studio podcast So most people have home studios
1: Well, here here's the funny story I actually went out and they said go out and get us a number We want you to do we want you to just write us a check, you know We don't want to do the commission thing anymore. We're blah blah. It's too hard to run these invoices down whatever So we want to change it up. So they're like go check out rooms all over nashville and come back to us with a number So I did and I found Everything from like a closet from like fifteen hundred a month all the way up to a, a decked out place for twenty three fifty. The place I'm at now is two grand a month, and uh, it's fantastic. I've got a maid that comes in every Monday, bottled water provided. I've got a fridge, uh, electricity. Ca- it's it's heaven. You know what I mean? I could stay here the rest of my life. So, but I went back to Soundstage and said two grand, and they're like, "Are you insane?" And I said, why? I said, well, they said, well, the worst you've ever done was like six grand in a month. You made us <laughs> and the best was like 10 or 12. And so there's like, there's no way in hell we're going to give it to you for two grand a month. And I said, well, you understand that I would be a total idiot if I didn't leave. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 we totally get that. I'm like, okay, well, I'm leaving.
0: So who has that room now? Is anyone even there?
1: I think they turned it into a. Production suite for one of their riders over there. They've got a full staff of riders. So i've only been back maybe two or three times in 15 years, you know, so no hard feelings, you know Every left I mean, on, business I get it. Yeah. Yeah, it was totally business left on good terms So no heartache at all, but it was just a, a business move, you know a smart one on my decision and one i'm glad I made and wish I would have done it at least five years ago, maybe more, but it was scary you know, going from a situation where you didn't have to kick out anything. And I probably had, boy, when I moved over here, I had to treat the room, buy some gear. So I probably was five grand, you know, all in the move. And it was funny because my that was when I told that story about cutting my finger off, that had just happened. So my wife actually, with a friend of mine, put together my Argosy desk you know, you order from Argosy and it comes in pieces almost like Ikea furniture. And so she actually offered to put that together because I couldn't use a screwdriver or wrench. I was a one-hand dude taped up. And funny story, for the last two years, when I would turn the volume and the subs would start resonating, I would hear this rattle in the console. And I'm like, son of a bitch, where is it? I chased down every loose knob on this Pro Control, my speakers, everything, And I've got a preamp over here on the right side. And I actually had an LED go out. So I pulled that out, lifted out this right side to send it off to get the LED fixed. And I found a little screw that my wife forgot to put in that was just sitting underneath on a piece of wood. And that's what's been rattling for the last two years. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, son of a... So I went home and I totally said, babe, anytime I tell that story, I am throwing you under the bus. I love you to death, but (laughs) that screw caused me two years of resonance heartache in here.
0: As you've grown, you've matured, you've been in this a long time, uh, mixing music and in the country music world specifically, what has become more important to you and what has become less important to you over the years? You know what's
1: become more important is keeping myself from getting bored and trying new things and trying to almost these days I almost feel like I'm 17 or 18 again and trying to learn as much as possible because you get to a point where you struggle your whole career when you're young to get to a certain point where you start getting work then you start getting work and it's almost like you go on autopilot for a bit and then You get to a point where the work is coming in so much That all of a sudden you go, you know what? I need to reinvent myself To stay fresh and on top of it again. So That's what I find myself doing now on my days off when I do have one Is I literally feel like I'm 18 or 19 again and i'm going in trying new samples And trying to learn as much as possible. So You think you get to a point where you know it all. And I realize, boy, once you start thinking you know it all, you're done. So I'm like, I never stop learning. And people probably around the country will attest to it because I'm cold calling more and more people that I hear mixes on. And I'm just like, you know what? Now I've got a little bit of credibility so they won't think I'm like this crazy stalker. I can be like, hey, this is Billy Decker in Nashville. And they're like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of you. I'm like, dude, I love what you did on so-and-so record. I'm like, you want to share samples? Do you want to, you know, be Facebook friends? Do you want, how about I bribe you with a cutting board? Let me do something. Give me something, you know? That's awesome. (laughs) So I think the main thing I've been doing lately is just having fun, you know? You get to a point where you just keep banging out so much stuff that it's like, I need to stay fresh, you know, for my own sanity's sake. So I'm, I'm having more fun than ever now, to be honest with you.
0: Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic, and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine, so you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business and you have no idea what you should be focusing on. And you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com coach. That's the number six figure creative.com slash coach now here's our show
2: as we've been working on this podcast You know, I think that there's this You know, we try to figure out what's the goal here What do we help people get out of this and obviously from the title of the podcast six figure home studio We're hoping what they get out of it is that their business runs better But I think one of the things that's a little difficult to communicate is kind of right there with what you were saying was the goal isn't maybe necessarily for people to have a bigger better business So well, that's got to be part of it but to be a lifelong student To be interested in constantly learning And I think for a lot of people with you know having a business that runs well They think oh, you know, i'll learn some things and that'll be enough and then i'll be successful I don't see that in any people that I know that run a successful business Without without a doubt every single one of them is a lifelong learner and enjoys learning That learning is a means to its own end it's fun
1: the reason I met Brian was because I kind of got bored just doing my own country thing so I stepped into that metal genre you know the hard rock stuff he does so well and I, I mean I've always liked it but I didn't learn to appreciate it until recently and I learned to appreciate it from an engineering standpoint and what was cool was I was hearing something that I couldn't do. So I'm like, I have to figure out how to do this. You know, if I love hearing something that when I hear it, I go, holy smokes, how in the world did they do that? You know, I've got some skills, but I mean, that's like some skills. So I love hearing something and then trying to figure out how to do it or reaching out and then finding out it was like, oh yeah, yeah. I kind of knew how to do that all along. Maybe I just wasn't doing it enough or in the right way or, you know, that sound is something being compressed, you know, five gazillion to one instead of two to one. That was my (laughs) problem, you know? But what I do not like is hearing something and just going, eh, God, done that, been there, you know, been there, done that. I can do that with my eyes closed. That ain't fun, you know? So I'm always trying to search outside the genre to find something new that almost like inspires me in an engineering way, you know, and then bring it back to this format and try to morph it in with what I do. You know, I think that's, that's kind of fun and that keeps me fresh, keeps me on top of the charts so I can hear what everybody else is doing and what's going on out there. And, uh, I've got enough work where it allows me to practice, constantly you know every day i come into work i consider it practice i consider it practice for the next gig so whether i'm working on a demo or a record you're practice for me
0: have there been any other times in your career whenever you have done another reboot is this your first time doing a major reboot in your sound or what you're doing or is it, have you done this before
1: no i've done it before i did it when uh nickelback first came out And then along the way, uh, I've always been inspired by like Chris Lord algae and stuff like that. So anytime I used to hear him do something, I would try to reboot it, you know, but I would say probably the biggest reboot I've done is since I've gotten involved with you and, uh, universal recording machine, nail the mix guys. And, uh, that's probably the biggest reboot. I've just learned a lot about drums and sonics, you know, that we didn't weren't privy to in the country genre so it's been a lot of fun trying to morph you know a heavier sound with more aggressive tones into
2: country that's really interesting and I think you know we talk a lot about people finding their niche Um, and I think that a lot of times a niche can be combining two things that haven't been combined before and country and heavier music there's certainly a crossover potential there because they're both sort of genres where size is the most impressive thing. If you have the biggest, most enormous like sledgehammer of a mix, people go nuts for that. And not all music is like that.
1: No, I battled that a lot. And uh, this last year, the majority of the comments or the tweaks have been, Decker, turn the damn snare down. (laughs) 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 And that's
0: the fault of Brian Hood. Guilty. I have a very loud snare in my mixes. That's one thing that the heavy music genre, I think, gets better than
2: any other genre is drums.
1: They do. They get the drums a hundred times better than any other genre.
2: So for those of you guys listening that, that don't know, Brian has uh, a class he came out with um, a while ago called From Shit to Gold. Um, I got to just cuss in the mic. I don't get to do that very often. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's about you know making... It's exactly what it sounds like taking something that doesn't sound that great and making it sound enormous So check that out guys
1: I actually just got on it the other day because I had a I went back to revisit a uh a mastering thing that brian did uh regarding clipping in between two limiters and I was like man I can't remember what he did and I went back watched it Applied it to this country mix and Woohoo, I was the loudest guy that day.
2: <laughs> That's
0: awesome <laughs> That's so weird to hear this kind of stuff being brought over the country mixing world.
1: Oh, it's great. Yeah
0: All right Another shift again real quick I wanted to bring something up that we didn't get to talk about earlier And that was as your career was ramping up as you were getting bigger and better clients as you were making more and more money year to year to year Did you hit any setbacks? Did you get any major growth pains along the way?
1: You know what I didn't but I will tell you this every year there is a lull in the music business And it usually happens in January and February, just right after Christmas. And then a lot of times summers can possibly be down depending on if nobody's doing records just because everybody goes on vacation, summer vacation. So every year I get to those points and every year my business has pretty much stayed the same, if not grown. You know, this last year was my biggest, the year before that was bigger than, or not as big, but second biggest and then you know it started ramping up back in 2000 or so that's when it started you know climbing but every year this same time of year it never fails the phone goes a week or two weeks and no emails come in and it doesn't the phone doesn't ring and I walk downstairs in the morning I get a cup of coffee I see my wife and I just look at her and say babe the dream is dead it's over Decker's (laughs) done I'm done it's done I'm going to move to Florida. I'm going to dig palm tree holes for a living. We are over. And sure enough, she's like, this happens every year for the last 22 years. Would you relax? And uh, sure enough, you know, when you go out in the garage, take your mind off and start making some cutting boards or making a table or mowing the grass, all of a sudden you come back in and there's a message and the phone rings. But when you sit around waiting for it, you know, It'll drive you crazy and it happens to all my friends the musicians the engineers Everybody that's self-employed goes through that.
0: I tell people if you're self-employed You almost always feel like you're about six months away from the new year career at any given time
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it never changes. I mean here just like a week ago. I was telling my wife. I was like, yeah, it's kind of slim Sure enough, you know, I get three calls one's a record bunch of independent stuff. My sheets filled again But it's just like, it happens every year to everybody. I don't care who you are, you
2: know? For me, if January slows down, the third week starts to pick up in January, February picks up a little bit more, and then March, April, May is bonkers every year. And I'll get frustrated sometimes when you kind of get that, you know, lack of confidence, you know, because you're forgetting that there there are laws sometimes and lulls. And what would happen for me all the time is I would, I'd say, all right, I'm going to get out of the studio, I'm going to go on a walk with my family. I'm going to do something with the kids. And then three people, you know, would show up while I was gone. It was, it was, it's this like watch pot never boils thing. If you're sitting there waiting for it, it, it's like the universe is playing a joke on you and it knows that you want to work. So it won't let you, but then you go and, you know, do something family oriented or fun oriented and boom, all the clients start showing up.
1: Yep. And what you do is the older you get, the smarter you get and you start, investing your money and managing it smarter when you get older, you know, and you start thinking about those lull times and you're like, you know what? Instead of buying that new car, I think I'm just going to hang on to this money because, you know, it never fails. January's a little slim and I bet if I had 20 grand sitting in my account, I would feel a whole lot more relaxed, you know, rather than driving around in my new car. That ain't going to get me any gigs. So... You just pick up a few little things and you start relaxing and then you start going you know what I've been doing this for this long. It's not gonna stop overnight. You know, there's no way it's just gonna like You know, it's not gonna bitcoin
0: er."
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a new verb.
1: Yes
0: When people are scared to quit their day jobs in order to pursue audio full-time I tell them this I say when you have a day job You have one source of income and if they decide to fire you or the business closes down you lose that one source of income But when you are a self-employed audio engineer mixing engineer, whatever you want to call it You have dozens or hundreds or in some cases thousands of clients thousands of sources of income You're not going to lose every single one of those overnight like billy just said it's going to be At worst a slow decline in which case you can start reinventing yourself. You can start going out and building relationships It's not as scary to be self-employed as you know We said it you feel like you're six months away from the end of your career, but that's mostly joking Like we we've had we've all had long careers here We've all had steady incomes uh, for the most part, you know, maybe some lulls here or there But at no point do we just lose all income for the entire year It's it just does not work like that when you have so many different individual sources of income
1: Correct Even guys that own businesses, you know, they're They're self-employed, you know, if you're not working for somebody and you're the boss, you're self-employed Jeff bezos, he's self-employed. You know what I mean?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think there's that's a really interesting conversation Especially what brian brought up about how, you know, if you're employed and you have a job You have a single point of failure built into your life. You piss off the wrong guy or the wrong girl You lose all your income the next day So I think there's a component of that as a business owner and I'm curious to hear about for you, Um, but for a lot of people, small business owners, especially when they're starting out, we'll see this thing where one of their clients will make up 50, 60% of their income. Um, You know, how would you classify your business and how that's worked? Is there, your largest client provides, you know, 20% in a given month or 10% or what does that typically look like?
1: Uh, No, I was fortunate and I've seen, that happened where an engineer will gravitate towards one producer and all of a sudden that producer goes out of vogue or out of fashion or just retires or whatnot and that engineer is like he's wrapped himself around that and bubbled himself nobody even knows he's available anymore because they thought oh that's so-and-so's engineer you know so i've always been of the mindset that i want five of those guys you know instead of just one big one i'll take five medium-sized or maybe five guys that don't necessarily work as much but will add up to that and it's always still going i mean sure you get you know you get some producers that you'll latch on to but i've always made myself available uh even when i started doing records i was advised by a big producer in town they're like dude once you get up to a certain point you need to quit doing demos you need to stop that hundred dollar here hundred dollar there thing." They're like stop doing demos because you're going to be perceived as a demo guy And I did not take their advice and thank goodness I didn't because When he told me that i'm like well here, let me go think these songwriters have kept me employed For the last 10 years I can make a decent living if I never do a record just off songwriting demos or I can take a chance and Work for one producer and then you know what if he doesn't get the gig I don't get the gig it once again, it's out of my hands. So i'm basically not self-employed anymore I'm relying on that producer. So i'm like, you know what i'm gonna make myself available to anybody. That's got audio Have tracks will mix. That's what I said And sure enough When one's down another one's available I made it a point to never turn down a gig to never be too busy and to tell everybody I'll always get it done. You won't miss your deadline and I'll always work out a budget with you. And the reason I could do that is because I've figured out how to work so fast and efficiently. Maybe I don't have to charge 500 bucks to mix this indie project. Maybe I'll mix it for 300. Maybe I'll do it for 400. Maybe I'll do your record for, 1500 instead of 2500, you know Or maybe I will do it for 2500 But i'm gonna take everything and at the end of the year all those little things add up And boy, i'm sure glad I didn't take that person's advice for that reason and for the reason That now more than ever a lot of those songwriters that I came up with are now producers and they're the ones calling their buddies who used to mix all their own demos? Guess who that used to be? So it worked out threefold Unintentionally, but it's like no 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 i'm not gonna pigeonhole myself or Wrap myself around just one person i'm gonna work for everybody, you know
0: So what would you say your percentage of income from labels versus independent non-label projects is is it? I know in my own business. It's more like 90 percent comes from unsigned independent artists and only about 10 percent is actually label work
1: I would say label work is about 40%, maybe 50%, and the rest was publisher-wise, you know, publishers here in town, and then the rest would be unsigned stuff, independent stuff. And then I do a bunch of Canadian stuff too, so I'm, uh, I got plugged into the Canadian country music and have had some decent success up there. So I've got a, a handful of clients that uh, are great up in Canada, you know?
0: How did you get connected in canada's country market when you're here in nashville how did that come about
1: i actually mixed some demos for some canadians that actually got upgraded into masters and then when one canada's a lot smaller obviously uh, i think we're what 330 million in the united states and canada's like 30 million you know so their country music community is even smaller than ours and uh boy word travels fast up there you know I think I did something maybe a little bit quicker and cheaper than somebody else. And that ended up locking me into the system up there. And then I had success down here and they're like, well, shoot, I kept my price the same. I've almost got like a Canadian price, you know? And so I kept my price the same and I'm having all this success mixing these hits down here. And I tell everybody, I don't care if I mix a demo Or a master or an independent or what i'm going to give you the same exact quality The only difference is going to be what i'm getting paid But you're not going to see anything different. The only person seeing anything different is me And it'll be the money Uh, and I got no problem doing that and it's worked out great
0: I've heard people have an issue with charging different rates for the same service to different clients What is your opinion on that? Why do you think it's okay to do that sort of thing?
1: because a lot of times I will ask The clients what they're comfortable with and a lot of times they'll shoot out a price That's a lot higher than I would have even quoted. You know what I mean? So a lot of times I'll let them dictate the price and just because I can do more volume than a lot of people it, It doesn't bother me as far as having multiple price points there's record labels here in town that I've been mixing for for years and that price is locked in. You know what I mean? So it doesn't matter if they got a new artist or an established artist. I'm on file. That's the rate they pay and they're happy to pay it. And I'd be crazy not to take it. For songwriters, I've been doing the same price, basically 200 bucks a demo, you know, forever. And that publishers can't afford to pay as much, obviously, you know. And especially now since, you know, Pandora, Spotify. Apple Music, stuff like that, the streaming business. Uh, A lot of the demos have been cut back, you know. But then I've also got a rate for independence, whereas if they're going to put something out, uh, say, on the internet and sell it, I'll be like, okay, let's do it, you know, 500 bucks. Uh, Because they're going to make some money off it, so it's not just a one-time demo thing where it's going to be used to not make money. But Well, actually, it would be used to make money, but per se, that... $200 piece of intellectual property is not going to earn income after that Uh, It will be recut and the income will come off A different stream of that So yeah, I have no problem charging different prices and some people just can't pay, you know, some people are like dude, we love what you do, but we don't have a a 2500 bucks for you to mix like, you know, chris young's record i'm like, well, do you have backers or do you have? You know, do you want to put it on the internet? Or is this just a demo, a song demo that you would like to just pitch? So that will dictate the price, you know. Most people don't have a problem. I mean, just be open and honest with them and say, hey, you know, obviously, this is usually what I get paid to do a record. We don't have a big conglomerate record company behind it. So yeah, I'll cut you a break. Absolutely. You know, if you're paying for it out of your own pocket, I'm definitely not going to charge you 2500 bucks a song if you're paying for it out of your pocket.
2: Yeah. Well, tell us about, you know, when, when you're doing negotiation like that on price, do you ask them to Dropbox you session files or stems or what does that look like?
1: Uh, We'll go ahead and nine times out of ten, I just ask for the Pro Tools session. Since I'm in Pro Tools, I can open that up so they can send me the session. If they're in Logic or Ableton or some other DAW, just do consolidated WAV files back to zero. I always tell them to... Uh, if there's a certain effect they love on any of the instruments that they don't think I can reproduce or recreate to print it, you know, and then send me the dry as well. But usually I, I'm hoping they they have their vocals tuned. You know, if not, I can do it. I may charge a little extra or farm it out to a couple people I know that do that on a regular basis, you know. But for the most part, I just say, just send me send me your audio, you know. We'll take care of it. So, But a lot of times I get stuff that's screwed up or missing files and then I'll have to go back and call them and say, hey, you know, I'm not really a stickler just because I'm obviously I'm pretty laid back, you know, so I don't have like a a list of rules. I've seen on some dudes websites they are like, "Okay, we need if you would like me to mix. This is the protocol and that's pretty cool, you know, so they probably avoid having to call them and, and say, hey, you know, they're you're missing the kick track. We need to do a save copy in and click all audio files It's spread across three drives back at your place in you know, idaho or whatever But yeah, I don't mind nine times out of ten if something is screwed up It gives me an excuse to call them and chat with them and talk to them about their project and work on those people skills So there you go creates twofold
0: Does your wife have any part in? Your business as far as helping you keep things running smoothly doing any financials doing anything on the business side of things
1: she does. Uh, actually I used to do all my own billing and my wife, she's always been a stay at home mom. And once the kids started going to school, she had, you know, the day free. And she was like, I asked her if she would like to do the books and the billing. Cause she's way better with money than me. So, uh, I mean, to this day, my wife is all, I'll make the money, give it to my wife. I mean, she could be, Stockpiling it in Sweden, for all I know, I have no—I couldn't even remember how to write a check the other day. I had to call and ask her, but um, I actually asked her if she wanted to do the books, and she said yes. So she, you know, got quicken out and got her little system going. But it works really good because we can do a good cop, bad cop thing. So, like back when I used to do the billing, I would have to be the guy in the studio. Yeah, man, love your song, blah blah blah, and then I'd also have to be the guy that. Followed up two days later, hey dude, uh, it's been like, you know, two months and I don't have any money, so I was wearing double hats, but when you've got good cop, bad cop, I'm almost removed from that, and so I don't have to be the bad guy, and she can be like, listen motherfucker, pay the (laughs) bill, or I'm going to slice your throat, slash your tires, and bomb your house. (laughs) (laughs) Then if she needs to get me involved, you know the hammer's really getting thrown, so... But it really has worked good, you know, so I basically come to work and just fill out almost like invoices She's printed out for me with the song title the client the email where to send it the date the services performed And uh, I literally have paper i'm old school pen and paper guy and a little folder So i'll take those home give them to her She'll transfer them into the computer keep the paper records just in case we've ever need to cross check it, you know, she just boxes them up in a folder or a bin or something, you know, but it works really good. You know, go a little old school, new school, and then good cop, bad cop, but it works good. She sends out monthly reminders and she stays on it pretty good. You know, I would let them build up, build up. Cause I just dreaded doing it. You know, I'd have to sit down and email them. I just hated doing it. So I would wait till like, sometimes I'd get like two months behind and you know, when you're self-employed, What we do today, we'll probably see a check in two months. So if you wait two months, you're going to have a two-month period where your mailbox is going to be empty. So I usually try to give them to her at least once a week, if not a couple times a week. I'll just feed her the invoices as I get them. And then you always have a steady, constant stream coming in the mailbox. So, But yeah, it works good.
0: You have a rejection letter on your wall. I do. Can you tell us about that?
1: Back in 94? I think 92 or 90 no 94 I sent out job applications after I had finished up recording school at full sale done my internship then I came back and worked at a music store and was running live sound and selling guitars in Lincoln Nebraska at a music store I sent out resumes and I got I sent one down to Nashville one to Virginia Beach one to on the border of Mexico doing Latino music and then one up kind of by chicago and the only one that i heard back from believe it or not right away was the one from nashville and i basically got lambasted because the gentleman i sent it to thought i was being too forward thought i was too aggressive in my language or whatever you know um i looked at it like i was just excited fresh out of school and i was willing to do anything and he, he seemed to think that I came off a little too cocky or arrogant, whatever, but it was pretty funny because I kept it, framed it, and I've had it since 94, and it almost serves as my motivation. Uh, it was like my first rejection letter, and he was pretty harsh about it. I mean, he basically told me that I was basically an idiot, you know, <laughs> and that I should just steer
0: clear, you know? What is he doing now?
1: I have no idea. Everybody asks me that when they come in and they see it. Uh, I think I even posted it on Facebook, but I've never met him to date. And uh, boy, I'd kind of like to It'd kind of be nice to actually thank him, you know, for being kind of a, a jerk to me.
0: Yeah. Put the chip on your shoulder.
1: Yeah. It motivated me. And, and to this day, I see it when I come in and I'm like, you know what? That It, it kind of keeps you going when somebody tells you you can't do something especially me it's just like okay that's a challenge (laughs) i can do it and i will do it and you did it yeah and i did it so and i hope to keep doing it
0: all right so now it's time to start wrapping the interview up and we have a segment at the end that we call the fave five this is five questions that we ask all of our guests and since billy decker is our first guest on this podcast we're still working on what those questions are going to be so these are the five questions we have right now they may change in the future but this is what we have at this moment so the first question is, if you could give young Billy Decker advice when you were just starting out, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself?
1: Ask more questions back when I was younger. I realized you could get a lot of answers if you just took the initiative and stepped outside, and made yourself a little uncomfortable and took a chance. When I was younger, I didn't do that. I kind of just sat back and waited for the answers. And when I realized they weren't going to come to me and I had to go find them. And I probably hit that in like my mid thirties. I realized that, you know, after I had kids and stuff like that. And I'm like, after I had enough self-confidence and had done enough projects to go, hey, maybe, you know, I mean, we all think we suck. I do. To this day, I hear something, like I'll hear something you mix, Brian. And I'll go, oh man, back to the drawing board. I'm terrible. I don't even know why I'm doing this,
0: you know? I feel the same way.
1: Then there's other people that come along and go, hey, dude, you know, they feel that way about themselves. And maybe they're talking about me. Like I was the one that did something that they liked, you know, or something like that So once you realize that you don't suck and start asking a lot of questions stay humble but that's the the best thing I would have uh Said to myself is is to gone after it a little bit harder and maybe not sit around and wait for it You know to drop in my lap, but to go after it
2: What's the most eye-opening slash helpful business mistake you've made in your career so far?
1: The eye-opening business mistake I made was not backing up a hard drive and erasing a major label project. $70,000 down the drain. Oh. And we had to re-record it. Now, luckily, I did not have to pay for it, but uh, I have never lost another audio file in the 15 years since then.
0: You never make that mistake more than one time and and both billy and I have learned that when the hard way Although I would say yours billy was a little harder lesson learned than mine.
1: Yeah, I was actually uh Not hired on the project So that's why I think I wasn't responsible for it because I was almost just like an intern type thing, you know So it was like well, we can't ask him for the money because he doesn't have anything, you know <laughs> <laughs> So that's probably the only thing that saved me is I was unemployed at the time
0: All right. Question three of the Faye Five. Was there any sort of business book or some sort of article or anything that maybe sparked something in you to change your life or change your trajectory in some way? And if not, any sort of article or business book, uh, maybe some sort of relationship, specific relationship. One of those three things. Yeah.
1: uh, There wasn't a book, but there was a producer named Scott Hendricks, and he actually is head of A&R over at Warner Brothers now and used to run Capitol Records, Produced everybody in country music at one time or another john michael montgomery brooks and dunn I mean you name it, you know But he told me and to this day he still follows this policy, but he said Call everybody back by the end of the day So like say we've been doing this podcast my phones rang like two or three times And it's on silent But he said never let the phone A phone call go unanswered longer than you know, basically 24 hours and to this day, I can like call him right now and nine times out of 10, he'll pick up the phone and say, Hey dude, I'm in a meeting. Let me call you back later. I mean, that's how good he is. You know what I mean? And he is like sitting on the top of the music business industry, but he'll pick up the phone call from an unknown number, you know, cause I used to call and before we had caller ID and stuff and he would Hendrix, this is Scott, you know? So that just always stuck with me and impressed me that no matter who you are, no matter how big you think you are. Answer your phone call and return all your messages by days in and you'll probably do okay. I'll take that one step further and uh, followed that advice and got a gig because this other producer wasn't calling them back. And so they pulled the plug. I ended up getting the whole mix gig because they couldn't get a phone call back from a producer that they'd started working with. So yeah, so there you go. It actually worked real, real time experience.
2: Next question. What's the biggest challenge in your business right now and how are you dealing with it?
1: You know what? The biggest challenge right now, I would say, has been the adjustment from the work that I was used to getting for so long, meaning from the publishers, and now it's gone more independent just because publishers have cut back on all their demo budgets I still get demos, you know, from songwriters. I got some today, as a matter of fact, on my list, but they used to come every day, you know, five, six, seven songs every day on the dot. You know what I mean? Every day, everybody was doing that. And now those have gotten sparse, but the independent world has picked up and taken its place. So probably the biggest change has been more independent work, so songwriters used to hand me a batch of five songs you know what i mean and i would get 200 bucks a song that's a thousand bucks right there you know what i mean bang those out in a day make a thousand bucks a day great uh now i'll get maybe two songs at 500 a day you know what i mean uh rather than so the amount the the amount the volume has gone down but the price has stayed the same if not gone up, you know what I mean? And the price has just gone up because I've just, my price has gone up a bit because I've gotten more number ones and stuff like that. And people are willing to pay more, you know, when they call me, I would say the volume has gone down, but the price has stayed the same if not actually gone up. And that's good and bad because I love being busy. You know what I mean? It still feels weird. If I come in, I'll make the same amount of money, but it feels weird if I don't do five songs in the day. I feel like i'm slacking. You know what I mean? Or, or i'm slipping So or i'll even make more money and only mix a couple songs But it's like man, I should be doing like six or seven
0: <laughs> All right That this leads well into the fifth question in the phase five and that is what keeps your passion going in your business Especially when times get tough and I know that you recently went through uh, you were battling cancer you just cleared all that up which is awesome to hear so what what keeps you going when all of that stuff is is happening in your life when you got so many distractions and where things get tough
1: uh you want to know something interesting not that anybody wants cancer but i think getting it actually slowed me down it didn't slow me down work-wise but it slowed me down stress-wise because when somebody tells you you're gonna die all of a sudden you go huh You know, maybe I better reevaluate what's important to me. And you stop worrying about all the little things. Uh, You stop worrying about the phone ringing. Like we were talking earlier, it's hard to do, but you just go, you know what? I'm just going to chill and just kind of sit back and let life's little plan take place. And the phone rings more. You get more work than you can even imagine. You're happier. I think just slowing down was probably the best thing to ever happen to me. And Mm. like I say, slowing down work-wise isn't what happened. I've actually gotten more work, but it's just slowing down in your head. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you just, you stop sweating the small stuff. And I apply that to audio too. So like when I'm mixing or at the studio, the thing that really excites me now coming in is to like put on something Brian did or one of the Churcos or uh, Chris Lord Algey. And listen to it and go, oh man, that, that is, I want to do that. And it's almost like I've got this renewed energy, you know what I Mm -hmm. mean? And it's because I've been able to like, just uh, take a deep breath. I beat cancer. I battled it, you know? And it's almost, I wish they say the chemo is supposed to give you like superhuman powers and everything changes. And I was either hoping for x-ray vision or like super hearing and I got Mm -hmm. neither (laughs) But i'd like to think I pretend I got super hearing.
0: That's awesome So where can people go to find out more about you billy to find out what you got going on to find out What's new in your life and and what kind of work you've done and stuff?
1: Well, you can always uh hit me up on facebook at just billy decker, you know a lot of people They they have unlisted numbers and they hide their emails and i'm like no, no, no. I live off that I want everybody to have my cell phone. I want everybody to have my email So you could always send me an email at decorator d-e-c-k-e-r A-t-o-r at comcast.net Or you can go to billydecker.com. I finally got a website this last year And that shows pictures of like the studio I work at and some of the stuff i've done Yeah, I I seriously urge everybody Like just like I said, I reached out to bob clearmountain. Hey, it it takes nothing to email me man Seriously, if you have a question Hit me up I'll probably learn something from you that you probably wouldn't even be expecting to divulge, you know i'll I'll come away (laughs) the one that's the winner so And who knows you might be the next producer that's going to call me five years from now So i'm i'm gonna be nice to you because i'd Hmm. like to work for you.
0: That's cool We both thank you so much for coming on the podcast today taking your time out of your day to do this and We are both super excited that you beat cancer and there's gonna be a lot more billy decker in the world Mm -hmm.
1: Well, thank you fellas. It was it was a pleasure and i'd i'd like to say the honor was mine.
0: I mean that So that is it for
2: our interview with billy decker chris what were some of your takeaways from this episode? Well, you know, it's a few weeks now after we recorded it And you know, i've had a lot of time to digest and I just keep on thinking about what billy said about social skills and about how important those were um, to him as he built his business, and I just can't stop thinking about that, about how th- they're like a meta skill, and how when I began my career, that I only invested in audio skills, not in the social skills, and suffered mightily when I first started out, you know, 15 years ago or so.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. I I struggle with that same stuff early in my career. I'd actually say for the majority of my career, I struggled with being as easygoing and laid back as Billy seems to be. Uh, In all my interactions with him, he's acted exactly how he acted in that interview, just super laid back, easy to talk to. And that's actually one of the things I took away from this episode was his overall mindset, his overall attitude. He has, I don't want to go too deep into the mindset side of things, but if anyone else in the world has ever had an abundance mindset, it's Billy Decker. You know, they have the abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. A scarcity mindset mixing engineer would be somebody who wants to hoard all their samples. They want to hoard all their knowledge. They don't want to share it. They don't want anybody to know it. And they don't want to help anybody because that's more competition for them. An abundance mindset, someone like Billy Decker, a mixing engineer like Billy Decker is going to share all his knowledge with everyone. And that's exactly how Billy is. He shares everything. He'll give you exact settings on anything you've ever heard him do if you ask for him. And that's because he is all about the abundance mindset, which is, you know, if I help others, they will help me. Uh, there's more than enough to go around for me. That is that sort of mindset. And he has a great attitude towards helping other people, I think.
2: Yeah. You know, um, we've talked about it before in the podcast, but there's a book called the go giver. That's huge for a lot of entrepreneurs, small business owners. It's really short. You know, what is it like 90 pages or 120 pages or something? Just a little parable. Yeah. Just a little parable. And I'm just sort of clicking with this right now. Billy Decker is living out the go-giver probably better than anybody else I know. (laughs) That's so true. And I doubt he's read it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Billy Decker is the go-giver and he's never read the book, most likely. He may have, I'm not going to say he hasn't, but I would guess that he has not. Because it's not, you know, it's, A pretty well-known book, but I wouldn't say it's a super popular, it's not a massive success of a book, is it?
2: I don't think that it is, but Billy just strikes me as that's just him, man, that he was born that way. Yep. And I like him. He's great. Same here. He's just nice. He's nice as fuck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the only way of putting it. Uh, Another takeaway I had was he is not afraid of failure by any means. He's he's okay with putting himself out on the line, cold calling people. You know, when he's talking about cold calling uh, people all along his career, There's that's terrifying for most people to think about cold calling somebody that has no idea who you are yeah. and to put yourself out there to be rejected like that. People are terrified of rejection and Billy Decker seems to have some sort of weird immunity to potential rejection in his life.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. He does have this And you get that with him, that he has this immunity to, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying self-doubt, you know, because that usually implies that you're cocky and irritating and annoying. Billy is none of those things. Nope. And it's interesting. He's a refreshing combination of incredible confidence and incredible humility. And that being said like his self-promotion he's okay with promoting himself
0: I know so many people that are terrified of promoting themselves a because they're scared of the rejection Because they're basically putting their soul out into the world And they don't want to be looked at as either cocky or looked at as a failure or looked at as you know They don't they don't want that feedback potentially. They don't want people to know what they're doing So they're scared to promote
2: themselves Well, I think you're onto something there this idea that to be afraid of self-promotion Is not humility and that's something that I probably need to learn better in my life, that putting yourself out there or being afraid to put yourself out there is not humility. That's true. You know, it's, it's a, you're afraid of what people will think of you, which is not humility. It's completely the opposite. And yeah, I really took a lot home from that. And it reminded me when we did that first interview, you know, when we first talked about doing this podcast, you know, one of the biggest things we talked about was let's do lots of interviews And, you know, we haven't done uh, a whole lot, you know, hopefully this is the beginning of a lot of them. (laughs) I mean, this is the first one we've done
0: so far, but yeah, we'll be doing more.
2: Yeah. But you know, the big thing for me is I thought about, wow, this is like, this is a lot better than college. (laughs) The chance to sit down with someone like Billy and ask questions for my own personal benefit, but also for the benefit of our podcast. And I'm so excited to be able to do that, to basically, uh, I was listening to a Donald Miller podcast the other day and he made a joke about he records a podcast to get free consulting. <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, I need some more free consulting.
0: We need more guests because we learn a lot from people like Billy Decker. One, one final thing I had actually written down as far as takeaways that I got from this episode is he is a master of staying top of mind. And I think that is one of his biggest contributors of success in his niche of country music, which is one of the most competitive uh, markets in nashville tennessee you know where country music rules the city basically to become such a dominant force in the mixing world in this really competitive genre you take something special not just in the ability skills and ability but the ability to stay top of mind consistently over a long period of time not get lost in the noise yeah not get lost in the noise so his ability to genuinely want to keep in touch with people you know to genuinely want to maintain those friendships but also his i think his cutting boards are genius
2: yeah well what's refreshing about Billy is that I've met a lot of people who have been you know aspiring entrepreneurs or businessmen and women, and the thing that you run into sometimes is they get so focused on the businessy thing and being professional and you know having this sort of like really irritating professional like business ease in their emails and What's so refreshing about Billy is he just flies in the face of all that. He stands out. And as a result, he's clearly really, really good at business and has grown a really, really cool business. And it's it's encouraging when you see people that are the opposite of a an MBA, a master's in business that are killing it. I love that. That's super cool. Hats off to Billy Decker.
0: Yeah. I want to just say again, thanks to Billy Decker for taking his time on this interview with us we were inspired by billy decker's interview and so on the next episode which comes out next tuesday we are going to try our best to tackle the topic of social skills when it relates to uh, your home studio so stay tuned for that episode and that'll be out next tuesday uh, just first thing in the morning pop on listen to that and until next time happy hustling
1: Whoa.